0: mentioned several times on the show my own introduction to The Twilight Zone as a child. I used to wait up until 2 or 3 in the morning for an episode to air on British television so I could watch it and tape it. Often I would be struggling to stay awake or dropping off partway through the episode. So there alone in the small hours watching this already strange and surreal show. I would wake the next day, perhaps only remembering certain images or certain lines of dialogue. And sometimes my mind would even distort these, making my memory different from what was actually on screen. So this was my Twilight Zone experience and it's one of the reasons why the show is so unique in my memory. It really was the place between light and shadow. Now I still get some of that feeling back when I watch the Twilight Zone now, but not completely. It was a time and a place that's hard to recapture. But a few years ago, quite unexpectedly, I did manage to recapture that feeling. When I began the Twilight Zone podcast, I picked up every book on the show that I could, and one of the books, was called Visions from the Twilight Zone by Arlen Schumer. The book isn't an episode-by-episode episode analysis. It's not about the production of the show itself. The point of Visions from the Twilight Zone is to distill the very essence of the show into book form, to recreate the feelings of the show rather than the specific details. And it's this book that took me back to that place as a child, in the dark, watching The Twilight Zone, as if in a dream, being immersed in images and words. The creator of that book, Arlen Schumer, is an artist and comic book and pop culture historian. Whatever he's commenting on, The Twilight Zone is never far away. Because of his particular skill set, He can talk about the subtext and historical significance of the Twilight Zone, but he also speaks the language of an artist, so his commentary on the show is quite unique. I was lucky enough to spend a couple of hours chatting with Arlen recently, and tonight I'm going to play you the first half of that conversation. Now when I interview someone, I do my research, I have my questions ready, and when we first speak there's usually a little pre-conversation where we say hello and get introduced which doesn't really make it into the final cut but while speaking with arlen i soon realized that my usual interview techniques didn't really apply anymore and that speaking with him was like reading visions from the twilight zone not so much a conversation but an experience that you just go along with so Arlen's joy and enthusiasm about the Twilight Zone and everything he does I find to be quite a joyous thing so why try to stifle that? So this time I'll present the conversation pretty much as it happened. So let's begin that journey now with the first part of my experience with Arlen Schumer.
1: But I can talk Twilight Zone till, you know, there's no off switch. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) I know you can. I I watched your lecture the other day and uh, man, your enthusiasm for it is infectious.
1: Thank you, man. Listen, it's all about love. You know, Serling and everybody that did the Twilight Zone, they did it out of love. You know, it's like all the comic book artists that I grew up with. They all did it out of love Uh because the money was shit. You know, the ratings on the Twilight Zone were low. He was always in trouble with the sponsors, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's what art's all about. Van Gogh never sold a painting, right?
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I want to start with maybe some of your comic book type work because I think it feeds into the, the Twilight Zone quite well with, with the way I want to approach it.
1: I did a whole lecture on comics in the Twilight Zone. Oh, really? And how they cross-referenced and influenced that I mean, we could do a whole interview just on that, but... To make a long story short, the Twilight Zone, and I go into this somewhat in my lecture. uh, Uh I touch upon the EC Comics. I think in my lecture, if you watch the right lecture, the one from the the New York Times Time Center, that one?
2: Uh Uh-huh, yeah, yeah.
1: I think I touched upon the fact that a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes are like television versions of the EC Comics science fiction stories of the early 50s, which Serling probably read but just never admitted to it in any kind of public forum, like a lot of people didn't admit to reading comics but, you know, if you know your EC Comics science fiction stories you know, they were little 8-page uh, science fiction stories adapted from the same pulps that Serling ended up adapting Twilight Zone episodes from, Yeah, and those stories... Finishing in eight pages, which for comics were like short stories, they always had little twists and surprise endings, mm-hmm. just like the Twilight. So, Serling had to have been influenced by those. You know, they adapted Ray Bradbury's stories in comic form, yeah. the EC comics. So, then Serling does Twilight Zone, but meanwhile, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko are doing these little five page stories. Marvel comics in the early 60s, right after Twilight Zone debuts, and they're like knockoffs of Twilight Zone episodes. Mm -hmm. They have some of the same stories, mannequins and robots coming to life, and you know what I mean? So Stanley, again, comic book people were watching television like everybody else. So then you get to the last issue of this comic, Amazing Adult Fantasy, which sounds like a description of what the Twilight Zone was but it was the Marvel Comics title. yeah. And in the last issue, in 1962, they feature a teenager who gets powers, but he doesn't use them to benefit others. He uses them selfishly. And uh-huh. at the end, his uncle Ben gets killed. You know what I'm describing? Of course, yeah. The first Spider-Man story. Spider-Man is the first superhero not to use the superpowers altruistically at first like every DC comic superhero that preceded him. Mm. They all got their powers and were like, oh, I'm going to go fight crime. I'm going to go save the world. Spider-Man is the first, you know, pre-counterculture, like, hey, man, I'm going to make money. (laughs) And then he goes on reality television, if you remember the first story. And the point is, is Spider-Man's story comes out of irony Mm. that he did not his powers to save his Uncle Ben when he could have. That is the same irony of those comic stories that Stan Lee and Steve Ditko were doing that were knockoffs of the same irony that the Twilight Zone was traveling in, which was the same irony that the EC Comics comic book stories traveled in. So you see how that whole thing connects? Absolutely. So Spider-Man is a Twilight Zone superhero story. Hmm. Of which Serling never got around to doing one. By the way, in my book, The Silver Age of Compagor, and in the lecture that I did on Comics in the Twilight Zone, I compare Steve Ditko's art to the Twilight Zone look. Yeah. And they yeah. had similar people, you know. Every you know, Steve Ditko drew average, everyday people. Yeah. Not masculine, super heroic figures. Just uh-huh. like the Twilight Zone featured, average, everyday people. Boy, I hope you've been recording this, man, because that was some good shit.
0: I'm recording it, don't worry.
1: (laughs) This is what I'm saying, Tom. It's like, stop me when you've heard enough. I can wax poetic, nostalgic, reverential... On any aspect of the Twilight Zone you want to delve into.
0: I've got about 10 questions, but you talk as much as you want, man. And, uh, it, you know, I've got time. It's it's As long as you've got the time,
1: then I'm good. Tell me first, like, the background of, of you and this podcast and who's going to be, you know, just so I get a sense of, like, who I'm talking to. Well, first of all, wh- where are you? Where are you in England?
0: Oh, I'm in Liverpool. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I've
1: heard of that place.
0: We've got, we've got four very famous... Um, residency yeah. here
1: yeah yeah i think i've heard of that.
0: i used to write for a magazine called scream magazine and i kind of got involved tangentially with the release of the twilight zone on blu-ray over here
1: wait wait, wait. tom what was your background with the twilight zone did you grow up because i know in england didn't the twilight zone wasn't the twilight zone in england right from the get-go in 1959 like didn't your generation grow up with it or through reruns or whatever or i don't
0: know my thing is and, and i'll kind of come to this when we talk about your book you know i didn't catch yeah. your first time round but when i was a kid it was showing at like two o'clock in the morning yeah, yeah, yeah. so i had to wait up to to watch it to make sure my vcr because sure. i didn't trust my vcr so i would tape well, it you know i had to stay up to see it and the sad thing is yeah. that to this day the Twilight Zone has hasn't been on television since in England.
1: Are you kidding me? Honestly. Are you kidding me? Honestly. Cuz I was going to say you got to figure out how to get me over to England. Yeah. So I can do my Twilight Zone lecture or a series of programs or whatever because I know in England but aren't Listen, I'm older than you. Isn't there an older fan base of The Twilight Zone in England or no? It's not even on the equivalent of cable or whatever. It's, no. Are you kidding me?
0: Here's the thing. The, the 80s show gets shown on the horror channel over here.
1: Yeah, the, one of the remakes of The Twilight Zone?
0: Yeah, the 80s one.
1: Which, uh, don't even get me started. Listen, it, it, I, when I talk about The Twilight Zone, I'm talking about the original 156 episode black and white period. Yeah. Don't even get me. Don't even waste my time with all the remakes and the redos. Mm-hmm. I think they've all sucked, you know, but that's a whole other story. But my point is, so when were you, like, exposed to it, to the great episodes? Like, how old were you?
0: I must have been, God, about 10 years old, 10, 12 years old. And that's when I was waiting up till 2 in the morning to, to get them on, on tape.
1: But I mean, did those, and did those episodes blow you away as a 10-year-old?
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, you're sitting yeah. there on your own in the house at 2 o'clock in the morning watching these things, and they, they just blow your mind.
1: Was there one particular episode that stood out among all?
0: Well, as a kid, I, I vividly remember Mirror Image. Yeah, it's a beautiful one. Yeah, the doppelganger kind of thing just just blew my mind. That's, a,
1: that's one of the foundation ones, yeah. That one I describe as the most uh, Hitchcockian. Yeah, yeah. Quite like, if Hitchcock had done a Twilight Zone episode, it would have been that one.
0: So, uh, you know, I can't, it kind of lay dormant for a while, my, my Twilight Zone love, uh, because it just wasn't on TV.
1: But, Tom, you want to know what's interesting? Go That's on. no different for my generation. Uh huh. There were years where the Twilight Zone was not in syndication. I remember seeing it as a younger child than 10 in the early reruns, like when I was... I'm gonna say five, six, seven, eight years old, mm. and then for like years, it was gone, yeah. and I had these distant childhood memories of being freaked out, like by the by the eye of the beholder, the pig face episode.
2: Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. You
1: know what I mean, I don't know if you remember that one at ten years old at two a.m. <laughs> Didn't that one like burn your way it's in, into your brain? At ten years old.
0: Well, it's funny because I I don't even think they showed much care with which ones they were putting on. You know, they would they went in order.
1: The same thing growing up too. Yeah. Here, it was it never. It's only now, like a Sci Fi Channel uh, or whatever. I have this rerun station that shows The Twilight Zone in chronological order. Mm. You know, so they show a little bit of respect. But uh, growing up with the reruns, it was totally haphazard.
0: So it wasn't until DVD came out that I actually right. you know got to see a lot of the episodes because
1: as an adult yeah and did they hold up as an adult?
0: Well that, that's the beauty of it, isn't it you know you, you then you see it on a whole different level you, you, you start to get the real sailing yeah. messages yeah. in it as a kid it's all about twist endings and and crazy images
1: yeah but those, but those messages penetrated the idea of racism and bigotry and all those things, that's what shaped, well, that gets into my whole shtick, that's what shaped the counterculture in this country. That's what shaped the 60s generation. Mm -hmm. This idea that the world doesn't have to be the way it is. Yeah. This idea of the twilight zone, what if? Well, America searched for that what if in the 60s, Serling was like the prophet mm-hmm. saying this is what the 60s are going to be about, rejecting materialism, yeah. like the episode Willoughby, you know? I mean, this gets into the whole Twilight Zone thing, but you know what I mean? That, that's exactly... It penetrated as a child. Mm. Those messages, see, it, along with the twist endings and the scariness of it, I would bet dollars to donuts those messages did penetrate Mm. and made you think about the world and about people. Yeah. To quote quote one of my own quotes, you know, just how normal are we? Just who are the people we nod our hellos to as Uh we pass on the street? That is existential. That is surreal. That is the twilight zone. And that is looking at reality. That's looking at your life uh uh-huh. It's the essential philosophical This is what I'm saying. In 23 minutes, Serling and company got so deep in 23 minutes. So get me back where you were saying. So so you were asked to do a podcast. That was a couple years ago when the Blu-rays came out. And what was the structure? What was the structure of the podcast? Each episode was a different episode discussion or?
0: Well, it's a solo show. So I just go through each one and I I look up a few facts and figures and things. And, you know, I, I review it and talk about it, but you know, there's like a hundred plus reviews on us iTunes, five-star reviews. I think my first guest was Mark Zickrey.
1: Mark and I go back, you know, I tried to be the art director of his book in 1981 And I got rejected by Bantam Books, and that's what made me do my own book, which ended up being my coffee table book. And then, you know, Mark wrote a beautiful blurb for my book, and then Mm. 10 years later, he got me, he asked me to redesign his book cover for like a revised edition in 92. And he's about to come out with a revised edition of his book.
0: I've heard about that. Have you seen it yet?
1: No, no, no. I think he's still finishing it up.
2: Okay, okay.
1: Just like I'm finishing up a revised edition of my book. Ah. Yeah, which we'll talk about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, has podcast been successful? Like, people download it, listen to it, and you get feedback and all that?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, a ton of downloads. People send me emails all the time, mostly from America, obviously, but from all over the world. People are always happy to come on and talk about The Twilight Zone when I ask them to. So that's great as well.
1: Again, it comes back to love. Yeah, There's yeah. a deep-seated love, I believe, for The Twilight Zone and for Serling and for the shows themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know. it's funny. Um, um, every now and then, one of these actors passes away. Um, like, who just died recently? Um, oh,
0: we just lost Shelley Behrman today, didn't we?
1: Oh, really? Well, yeah, that's, yeah. That's interesting, because what I was going to say was, this is just one little aspect, but, you know, they might have other credits, but... Those Twilights, oh, like, take an actress like Anne Francis. Mm. Okay, she was in Forbidden Planet, you know, classic science fiction film. She had that one year as Honey West on television in the wake of the James Bond craze, Uh but it didn't last. You don't really remember much else of Anne Francis, but that one Twilight Zone episode she did, which is one of the greats, the After Hours with the mannequins, that's immortal, that's, that is eternal, and in a way, no matter what else she might have done in her career, which like I said, other than one or two credits, it's that, it's those Twilight Zone episodes that end up being the eternal, you know, Uh commemorations of so many of the, you know, take a woman like Inger Stevens, who I love, and you know, her tragic career, she committed suicide in 1970. Yeah, but you know, she tried to commit suicide a year before she did the Twilight Zone episode, The Hitchhiker. And again, she had a bunch of credits. She was a you know in demand kind of actress in the sixties, or at least she had a relationship with so many men in the sixties. Yeah, everybody wanted Inger Stevens. But the point is, is in the end, what is immortal about Inger Stevens? That episode, The Hitchhiker. That Twilight Zone episode, and she was in a second one. She was pretty good in that one, too. But The Hitchhiker, when she has that realization that she's dead after she hangs up the phone towards the end of that episode, uh-huh. those last two minutes where she has the soliloquy, which, again, I, I, I quote in my book, you know, the fear has left me now. I'm numb. I have no feeling. It's as if somebody... See how I can quote this stuff verbatim from memory, Tom? <laughs> But these lines of dialogue, like I said, I treat them like poetry in my Mm. book because they are poetry, but they're, but it's dialogue, but it's existential. It's surreal. It's like nothing else ever on television before or since she existed in that episode. And those, that episode will last forever. And her performance and the fact that she realizes she's dead Which so many directors and movies have ripped off since. You know that. Uh From The Sixth Sense to you name it. But, you know, Serling did it first on television. And then when you add the meta aspect that she tried to commit suicide a year before the episode. And then she ends up committing suicide. And this is her commemorative hall of fame performance you see what i'm saying tom oh yeah just that episode its ramifications alone are so deep and philosophical and rich Mm -hmm. that's the beauty of the twilight zone
0: well arlen i'm gonna get this on the rails
1: what can i tell you like i said i I know i interrupt a lot but that's because uh, like you said my love and enthusiasm for the show yeah I'm the son Rod Serling never had man. I'm <laughs> doing for that show what a son would have done for his father and I never had a father because my father died when I was four months old. Okay. So Serling is one of my father figures. I'm old enough I could have been his son.
2: Uh-huh.
0: His
1: two daughters are only a couple of years older than me Okay, but yes back on the rails, as you would say.
0: You know for anyone who doesn't know you well, let's put Twilight Zone aside for one moment you know, because it's, it's only a part of what you do, you know, give us some background and and tell us about your, your other work.
1: I grew up, the twilight zone was one of my first visual images. I remember seeing as a kid, I was five years old. Mm. And then I went to summer camp and I was exposed to comic books and superheroes, Superman, Batman, the justice league of America. And I started drawing my brother was, my older brother started drawing off the television Children's TV show called Diver Dan mm. in black and white, a deep sea diver filmed to look like he was underwater. So he would walk like in slow motion, you know what I mean? And yeah. they would dangle fish from monofilament wires. But he had a deep sea diving mask, so you never saw who he was. They uh-huh. kept it mysterious. It was like a superhero who's, you know, you never know his identity. So my brother starts drawing Diver Dan. And he's my older brother. So I start doing what my older brother does. I'm three years old. I start drawing Diver Dan. And then I get exposed to comic books. I learned how to read from comic books before I learned how to read in school. Yeah, Like a whole generation, by the way, did growing up in the 60s with the Silver Age of comics and DC Comics and Marvel Comics and that whole explosion. Mm -hmm. Just like all the creative arts in the 60s. In both England and America, as you know, with the Beatles and rock and roll and comics and movies and television, the 60s were this creative explosion, and I grew up in that like a whole American generation did. And comics, I started drawing from the comics, and I always knew I was going to be an artist because of comics. And I ended up going to art school, uh, wrote on school design, and uh, majored in graphic design. And yet I always drew and was trying to integrate comics into graphic design because graphic design is verbal, visual communication Uh and comics are verbal and visual. Um, Pretty much everything I love, Twilight Zone works on a verbal and a visual um, level. So, you know, the coffee table art book I ended up doing about the Twilight Zone is an art book because I'm treating the the black and white television images like black and white art photography. But then the verbal aspect, I'm treating the dialogue and narration like poetry. Yeah. So comics, the twilight zone. Um, and anyway, so uh, I majored in graphic design. I got out of art school and went to New York City and lived there for a dozen years and um, ended up working for one of my childhood idols, the great comic artist, Neil Adams, who's like a hall of fame. Oh, yeah. And he brought he brought photorealism into superheroes Mm -hmm. and basically he rendered fantasy worlds realistic yeah if you look at our whole, whole pop culture now movies computer graphics it's all about rendering fantasy worlds realistically yeah if you look at all those creators guys like steven spielberg and lucas they all come out of the 60s they were all influenced by what guys like neil adams were doing in comic book art rendering the world of fantasy superheroes realistically
3: Mm -hmm.
1: nobody had ever done that before and that's why neil adams made an impact so again like a whole generation i was influenced by neil adams i ended up working for neil adams in new york city when i was 25 years old can you imagine tom working for your childhood idol oh wow yeah so that was it was like going to graduate school but getting paid for it because i was also making a living we were doing commercial art for um the advertising industry, storyboards, and things like that. Uh He wasn't doing comics at that time. This was in the mid-'80s. And then I always knew that when you leave your childhood idol, who else can you work for? I mean, I had some other jobs in New York City. I did television graphics for the David Letterman show when he was originally on NBC late at night. Uh Um, So I had other graphic design commercial art experience. But after Neil Adams, I ended up on my own doing comic book style artwork illustration. But for the advertising and editorial markets, I didn't want to draw comics themselves. I was more interested in the single image. You know, guys who can draw 24 pages a month, God bless them. For me, 24 pages would be like a year's worth of work. So I have an illustrator's mentality of the single image And then I want to move on to the next image. You know, I've done multiple page, like promotional advertising comics. So that's what I did to make a living. But um, I always loved The Twilight Zone. And remember I said one of my first jobs was doing television graphics in the early 80s. And um, well, by the way, getting back to illustration, I ended up finally becoming a member of the Society of Illustrators, so I did establish a career doing comic book art
3: mm-hmm.
1: but advertising editorial usage. But like I said, that also gave me a love for comics and their history. It's like, I don't know how you can love an art form and not be interested in its history. You know, when musicians like Keith Richards, when he plays a guitar note, he knows the history of the blues where he's getting that note from.
3: Mm.
1: So it's like, when you love comics, I'd be you fall in love with the history because just like the history of movies and television and anything in the 20th century, it's got, it's such a rich history. So I developed a kind of a twin career as a comic historian, um, which is all labor of love type stuff. But you know, where I lecture about comic book history and stuff like that. But yeah, my, my first real professional lecture was actually about the twilight zone because in the late, in the late 80s, um, when I was making a living as an illustrator, this segues back to, I started to bring up, when I did television graphics in the early 80s, right out of art school, that's when I heard about Mark Zickory's book, book, um, The Twilight Zone Companion, that was going to be published by Bantam Books, which was a big publisher, Bantam uh-huh. Books. And they were in New York City, and I was in New York City, so... The minute that I heard that there was going to be—you got to remember—you go to a bookstore now; there's an entire section about books about television. Yeah. But in 1981, when this announcement was made, and there was no computer, no internet, this—who knows? I must have read this in a comic book fanzine or something. For all I know, how yeah. did you get the news that Bantam was going to be publishing um, a book about the, you know the behind-the-scenes twosome? The only book about television was The Making of Star Trek. That was it. Mark Zickery's book, coming out in 1982, is the second book about a television show. Wow. So in 1981, I'm doing television graphics in New York City, and I hear that there's going to be a book about The Twilight Zone. Flashback a couple years earlier. I'm at Rodan School of Design in the late 70s. This is just when video art is starting to happen
2: uh-huh.
1: where artists were basically manipulating the television image like used to go behind the TV and there was horizontal and vertical controls mm-hmm. and you could distort the image. and then they were taking pictures of the TV screen images that they were distorting and making prints and hanging them in galleries. So in the late seventies, along with punk and new wave in the visual uh, arts, video art was starting to happen. And I remember thinking to myself in the late 70s, you know, if they're taking pictures of distorted images of television images, are you kidding me? I could take pictures of Twilight Zone episodes, Uh which you gotta remember in the late 70s, black and white art photography was just being noticed as art. Mm. The Museum of Modern Art in New York City only established a photography department in 1975, which is also the same year of Bruce Springsteen's "Born to Run" album cover, one of the great black and white images of American pop culture. Mm-hmm. So this idea of the and and a big part of punk and new wave was returning to that early 60s black and white look. Yeah, if you remember Scott. And groups like Madness and early Elvis Costello. And, you know, there's a lot of this black and white, high contrast, early 60s imagery. Yeah. You see how, Tom, I'm trying to tie all this in. So in the late 70s, when people are taking pictures of TV images, mostly in color, by the way, not in black and white. Uh But I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. And I was blown away by the Born to Run album cover like everybody else was. And I'm in art school, and black and white art photography is just coming into vogue. I thought to myself, I bet you if I set up a camera in front of a Twilight Zone episode and took pictures, because I always felt Twilight Zone had a look Uh to its black and white look that was very different from other black and white TV shows like I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners or anything that aired before color television, you know, there was, you knew if you were flipping around the dial back in the day before remote controls, when you landed on the twilight zone, you knew you were on the twilight zone. Mm -hmm. So as a visual artist, as a young man going to art school, and all these ideas were rolling around my head, I thought to myself, you know, I bet you I could take incredible black and white photographs of Twilight Zone episodes, and they would look like art. Uh-huh. But I didn't do anything with that idea in the 70s. It wasn't until Zichri's book was announced in 1981, it ended up coming out in 82, that it made me go, you know what? I've got to be the art director of that book because I want to take these Twilight Zone images that and, and like be the book designer. Because remember, I had a graphic design background, from Rhode Island School of Design. Mm-hmm. We learned a concept called the concrete book. And what that meant, Tom, was that as a graphic designer, yeah. whatever the subject matter of your book is about, all of your visual decisions should reinforce that subject matter. Yeah. So if you were doing a book on, let's say, the history of American railroads, maybe uh, your typeface... Would resemble those old, uh, you know, 1800 typefaces. Maybe you'd have little railroad tracks that look like page numbers or something. You you would choose maybe sepia tone to evoke that. So every all of your choices, it's like form follows function. Yeah. They all support that uh, that the subject matter. So I thought to myself, if I were gonna design a book about the Twilight Zone. Then all of my decisions, the book has to look like a little black and white television set, mm. and then when you and then the images should look like black and white art photography. But then what about all those great verbal ideas? And that gave me that. But the point is, is I put together a, what's called a dummy book, and I sent it to Bantam Books in New York City with a cover letter saying, and, and by the way, to do that dummy book. I set up a Nikon camera in front of my television set because at that time in the early 80s, Twilight Zone was being, it was starting to get rerun in the early 70s after an absence of like almost 10 years.
3: Mm.
1: And so they showed it every night at midnight. So I set up my Nikon camera on a tripod in front of the TV set and watched Twilight Zone every night at midnight. And whenever I saw an image that looked cool, I had no time to think about it. I just snapped a shutter. Right. And out of those images, I put together a dummy book, like a proposal. Uh-huh. And I sent it to Bantam Books, like, I want to be the designer of this Mark Zickery book. Anyway, they sent it right back, back with a cover letter saying, thank you, Mr. Schumer, but we're going to do the book in-house. Okay. But thank you very much. So, I'll never forget, a friend of mine that worked uh, in the television studio where I was doing TV graphics, I said, you know, I've got all these ideas for how I would do a Twilight Zone book, but now I can't do it. And this friend of mine goes, Arlen, why don't you just do your own book about the Twilight Zone? Hmm. And at the time, I thought of myself as a visual artist. I, you know, I'm 23 years old or whatever I was at the time. I didn't think of myself as a writer per se. But that ended up putting me on an almost 10-year-long trek because I ended up getting my book, Visions from the Twilight Zone, published in 1990 by Chronicle Books in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. So Zick's book came out in 82. My book came out in 1990. In 1992, Mark asked me to redesign his book cover. And here we are in 2017. Mark is about to finish up a revised edition of his book. And I'm about to finish up a revised edition of my book Uh that I'm doing as part of a master's program. I'm getting my MFA late in my career so I can eventually teach college level. Wow. And I want to teach the Twilight Zone. I mean, if you looked at my lectures, I've developed a whole syllabus. If you read my five themes of the Twilight Zone, I posted that on my website. I don't know if you read that. I did, yeah. Uh Well, that's that's basically... um, the rough version of a syllabus I have about how, how I would teach the twilight zone. Yeah. Yeah. So as part of my getting this master's program, I'm revising my coffee table book, which has been out of print since 19. It came out in 1990. Mm. I think it went out of print in 95 or so. And, uh, I've always wanted to bring it back out in a, you know, how I would do it all these years later. So I'm kind of doing it for the master's program, but with the growth of online publishers like Blurb, you can actually produce what looks like a finished published book. Uh-huh. And if all goes well, Tom, my plan is to send it to CBS. I do have a publisher interested, Yeah. a really good art book publisher, but it all depends on getting the rights from CBS. So my plan is to finish the book for my master's program it's almost done. I'm literally in the final stages. Yeah. So, and then take one of these published versions of it, which looks like it'll look like a finished hardcover coffee table book uh-huh. and send it to CBS and this publisher that's interested. And, you know, them holding a finished book in their hands or what looks like a finished book versus a proposal in PDF form. Mm mm-hmm. Makes a stronger case for acquiring the rights. Yeah, and it gives the publisher. So that's my plan basically. But it's just interesting how, you know, I'm going to dovetail with Zickory's book. But my book is very different because it's not an episode guide. It's hmm. it's more of an art. But the revised edition has so much more text that over the years I basically took that five themes a uh, text that's posted on my site. And I elaborated on it and made it more of a verbal visual essay, which I incorporated into the original ideas of my book. So it's a revised version in the truest sense. It's yeah. it's both similar and yet completely different from my original book. Uh-huh. And bottom line is, most violence on TV, my book came out before the sci-fi channel, before the internet, before social media, and because it went out of print, there's only one coffee table book about the Twilight Zone, Tom, and that's my book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody's done one since. So if, if I can get this new version off the ground, where do you see it? Maybe I'll send it to you in PDF form.
0: Oh, yeah, I'd love that.
1: The point is, is I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed that this ends up becoming a book that gets published and available to every Twilight Zone fan because, like I said, Zichri's book is the definitive episode guide, uh-huh. but my book, like I said, is is more of a book experience.
0: You want to know what I love about your book, Harlan? You know when I, I told you earlier on about how I, you know, I, I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning to watch Twilight Zone, right. and you know, often I I might drop off in the middle of the episode, or I'm watching it half asleep, sure. and it and it made it quite a, a surreal experience sometimes, and
1: yeah, because it's like entering in and out of a dream.
0: Yeah. So I, yeah. and I and I would tape the episode and I would watch it the next day, and it was what? it was almost like was that the episode I watched because it's, right. it it didn't feel right. that way, and I think your book is the only time that I've really been able to recapture that kind of feeling that you're you're really distilling the essence of the Twilight Zone. Wow, mission
1: accomplished, Tom! You made my day, man, because. Yeah, that's exactly... Yeah, go on. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just saying that's exactly what I ever could have hoped, you know?
0: Well, that's it, you know, and and to pick it up all these years later and to open it and just kind of... It sort of hits you more on a different level, you know, you're, you're experiencing it rather than just reading it. And, and it really took me back to that those times watching it when I was a kid. And that's why I love your book so much.
1: Man, Tom, what a beautiful blessing you just gave me by saying those words, because you got to remember, remember I said, I did it before the internet. Uh, huh. you know, art is a lonely experience in the sense that you create it alone and then you put it out there and you know, in the age before the internet and social media and getting instant responses, mostly you you put stuff out as an artist out into the world and it's like putting it into a black hole Mm. and you don't don't get that direct response. This is why actors love the stage because unlike film or Uh television, when you're in front of an audience, you get that immediate response. Yeah. So, you know, part of the artistic, I think, ego is that idea that you're reaching into yourself, which is very painful and pulling art out of yourself. And then you're giving it to the world. Mm -hmm. And what you long for is, did it work? Did it affect people? Did it do what you wanted it to do? Did it, you know, did it move people? I mean, that's what art is all about. Did for one moment, did it take you away from your dreary day and -hmm. make you stop and smell the roses? You know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is the whole message of my book.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah.
1: If television images can be art, then everything can be art. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so what I set out to do with that book, which like my description, of the concrete book, how can I get across the experience of watching yeah. the Twilight Zone with those same feelings, Tom, that you described as a kid? We all have that. Mm. 10 years old watching the twilight zone late at night, no matter when you came to the twilight zone, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it's when you come to it, if you were a child and you came to it late at night, we all have those shared experiences. It's like our modern myths. It's our sitting around the fire as cavemen sharing stories. Mm -hmm. It's the electronic fireplace. So, I set out to do that book trying to, as an artist, capture in book form whatever I could about what the show meant to me and what it felt like and what it looked like and Uh what it sounded like, you know? And the thing is, is for you to say what you said about how it affected you is, like I said, the best thing I could have hoped for when I never got it originally, because when I put the book out, like I said, there was no direct response, uh-huh. you know what I mean, from people back then. You know, you only heard things, you know, later in passing or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got some good reviews and stuff, but I'm just saying hearing it directly from you and that it achieved exactly what I hoped it could, you know what I mean? It's a beautiful, it's like you've, uh, it's like a Mobius strip but you've completed The Mobius Strip.
0: Oh, wow. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you, Arlen. I, uh, I appreciate that, man.
1: You know what? I'm curious. When did you discover my book? When it really came out or later?
0: No, no. I, I would think it's probably um, about five years ago. Once I started doing this podcast, I was looking for whatever I could find. And I, and right. I managed... I, I got hold of you know the paperback version but you know i like a hardback book and it's kind of pricey now isn't it sometimes to to get hold of it in a hardback version but eventually i did you know i've been able to get both now i have the hardback version
1: please tell me you've taken off the dust jacket and looked at the embossed image On the hardcover underneath. Please tell me you've done
3: that.
0: You know, I have, but I only did it because you mentioned it on Twitter one day. Right.
1: Okay. Because I want to make sure that that's the most beautiful thing about that hardcover Uh is that and Ball's image.
3: Yeah.
2: The
1: the eyeball. It's funny. You know, you're English.
2: Uh Between
1: the Beatles and James Bond, you know, I was old enough to remember seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Mm. But my very first visual image, my very first movie experience was both my very first visual image i can recall sean connery in dr no the first bond movie at a drive-in uh-huh. and i had to be when that came out four and a half years old wow the next visual image i can recall as a child is that twilight zone eyeball
2: uh-huh. a
1: couple months later after dr no yeah. So isn't it a wonder that I became who I became if those are my first <laughs> visual images? And then, and, then it was, and then it was the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Like Bond, Twilight Zone, and the Beatles are like my formative childhood pop culture verbal visual experiences.
0: Well, this is what interests me because you've got that and... The Silver Age of comic books figures so large in your work as well. Right. Y- you know, the the beginning of the Silver Age was around the same time that The Twilight Zone...
1: Exactly. It's the same thing. This optimistic, forward-thinking, yeah. positive... Also, again, messages of tolerance and racial equality were also in the comics
3: uh-huh. and stuff
1: like that. It all dovetail. Yeah. It all intertwined. Like I said, Serling... Coming out of World War II, you got to remember, all the army guys read comic books.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That was why there was such a booming audience, and also why after the war ended, readership and sales dropped. Mm. So, servicemen like Serling were definitely exposed to comics. Yeah. And he loved science fiction. So, science fiction look, Superman is a science fiction story. The guys that created him also contributed to the first science fiction fanzine. Jerry, you want to know how science fiction comics are intertwined? The very first science fiction fanzine in 1933 is published by Mort Weisinger and Julius Schwartz, who became editors at DC Comics in the 40s and 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. and created the Silver Age. they were the two greatest DC Comics editors but they were science fiction guys. And who did they publish in the first issue of the fanzine? A short story by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster called the Superman. But it was where Superman was a villain and he looked like Lex Luthor with a bald head. Oh, wow. So comics and science fiction were always intertwined. Uh Always from, from the get go. So the fact that Serling and the twilight zone were somewhere in the mix, that's because Serling like science fiction, and yeah. I guarantee you, he read comics, and I guarantee you, he read those EC comics,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which were the best of both worlds. Yeah. And again, when he had to create a thirty-minute TV show, it was the equivalent of an eight-page comic story. It wasn't like a one-hour show, and that's the other beauty thing. Beautiful thing about the Twilight Zone, Tom. Yeah. They were half-hour dramas. Nothing like that existed before the Twilight Zone. And do you realize it's really hasn't existed since hmm. after the twilight zone, everything went to one hour in drama. Yeah. Half hours were sitcoms, the half hour drama and the half hour anthology drama was dead after the twilight zone. Mm-hmm. So do you realize for a brief moment in history, you talk about for one brief moment, there was Kamala? for one brief moment in television history. There was the Twilight Zone and it didn't exist before and it hasn't existed since. And that's what makes them also so jewel-like and so perfect.
0: There's a question I I really want to ask you, but it kind of comes off the back of something else. You know, your presentation called Twilight Zone Forever, which you can see on your website. For anyone who hasn't watched that yet, just tell us about what that is.
1: Well, remember I told you my very first lecture as a professional, uh, was in 1988 and during the eighties, I was trying to get my coffee table book published. Mm -hmm. It was, I I created my my first dummy book in 1981 and it didn't get published till 1990 all through the eighties. As I'm a freelance artist in New York city, I had a few full-time jobs and then I was a freelancer. But as I met people and I would bring my portfolio around and show them my artwork, I was also a graphic designer. So in addition to illustration, I would show them my other things, depending on who I was interviewing with. Yeah. And um, I would show them, depending on who I was talking to, if I thought they would be interested, I would show them my Visions from the Twilight Zone book idea. Uh-huh. I must have had some of the images and a couple of what sample double page spreads would look like. So the year is 1987 and I pitched the trade magazine of graphic design called print that they should do a special issue
2: uh-huh.
1: on comics. Cause that was the year after the dark Knight came out mm. and Watchmen, me and all of a sudden comics were getting rediscovered by the mainstream culture. And here, I was an illustrator working comic style, but also like a budding comic historian, because I was always interested in history. But my whole idea was, I want comics to be taken seriously as illustration in the same way that Roy Lichtenstein made comics get taken seriously in the fine art world. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do that in the commercial art world with my illustration and any other projects. So print magazine... Because I was trained in graphic design, I was trying to, like I said, use my position. I wasn't actually in comics, uh-huh. but I love comics, but I'm a graphic designer, but I'm also an illustrator. So the point is, is I pitched print magazine in 1987 that they should do a special issue on comics, given what was happening in the comic book world. And that was the, you know, the dawn of the graphic novel and The Contract with God and mm-hmm. Mark Spiegel's mouse. and uh, So flush with all that, and Print Magazine agreed. You know, and it's one of the historic issues of print. It came out in 1988. Anyway, the editor of Print Magazine said, Arlen, you should meet Steve Heller. He's uh-huh. uh, one of the art directors. he does, He's the art director of the New York um, Times book review section, very prestigious. And... Um, he's doing one of the articles that'll be in the special issue on comics. So I met Steve Heller and he had a long career, Steve Heller, big champion of underground comics. And, wow. but there he was the art director of the very prestigious New York times book reviews. So I'm thinking they hire illustrators. And so I'm going to meet Steve Heller thinking we're going to talk about comics and a special issue on print. And I show him my portfolio of my work and I happen to show my Twilight Zone stuff because it's a book. He's in charge of the book review section, right? Uh-huh. He takes one look at, the, at my Twilight Zone stuff and goes, oh my God, I love the Twilight Zone. He goes, listen, Arlen, I'm heading a symposium at the School of Visual Arts next year. Mm. How would you like to lecture about the Twilight Zone based on what you're showing me? And I had never done like a real lecture, but of course I said yes. So in 1988, I got back pre-computer when people were still using slide projectors, I got to do my first major lecture and I put together a lot of the ideas that I was using in my Coffee table book, which at the time hadn't been published yet. But it was all of these ideas from art school and my knowledge of surrealism and how to make all these connections because I saw the twilight zone coming after surrealism, but before. Or the psychedelic era, which was all very Twilight Zone, which gets back to what we started to talk about, about yeah, looking yeah. at the world and saying, what if? The original surrealists the word surreal comes from the French word surreal, which means sur, S-U-R, means on top of real, reality. Yeah. The surrealists wanted people to take a step back from their reality and look at it new. Surrealism started out as a literary thing with what they called automatic writing, where they wanted people to go into a trance-like state and just write like the stream of, that's where the phrase stream of consciousness. But then Uh the poets in France were also mixed in with the artists. So the visual artists started to create surreal imagery and surrealism became known more as a visual art form, but it really started out as a verbal art form. Andre Breton, who founded Surrealism, was a poet and a writer. So the point is, is I had a knowledge of Surrealism, not a surface knowledge as an artist, and I was always interested. Again, comics are kind of surreal. There's a Surrealism within comic book art and the characters that dovetails into Surrealism. Um, yeah. And, you know, Salvador Dali did that sequence in the Alfred Hitchcock film. So surrealism and American pop culture and movies and comics all sort of overlap. But I saw the Twilight Zone as a descendant of surrealism, but on television Mm. and that the visual symbols and the graphics and the look of the Twilight Zone, the high contrast black and white, that it had a very surrealist look. So when I developed this lecture, which turned into the version that's on my website, was shot in 2009 on the exact 50th anniversary of the Twilight Zone at the very prestigious New York Times Time Center in Manhattan, which was brand new. I think they built it the year before. So Mm -hmm. nobody else was gonna honor the Twilight Zone. I did that with my own money. I rented out the Time Center because I knew they would shoot my lecture professionally. So that version on my website is what I got out of it. But, um, I honor the twilight zone in New York city on its 50th anniversary, you know, with that, with that lecture. But, you know, that grew out of the first 1988 lecture. And in the years since, whenever I get to do my twilight zone multimedia lecture, um, because you know, I, it's part spoken word performance. I read dialogue, like spoken word poetry. I play the music. I've extra, and some of my, my um, music mixes, my mashups, are also posted on my website. That you could hear them. It's all there. But the point is, is they all grew out of me doing this kind of multimedia lecture performance, where I talk about the twilight zone. So it's part historic art lecture, but it's also, like I said, spoken word multimedia between the images, the music, the sound. It's what I tried to capture in book form but I do it live as a kind of a performance piece in a way. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. I would love to do it in England somewhere. Tom, we got to figure out, you got to get some cultural institution, basically just pay my expenses and get me over there. Because man, we could do something that would blow people's minds. Nobody's ever seen or done anything like what I've done with the Twilight Zone kind of live, you know what I mean?
0: Well, you know that um, the Twilight Zone's going on stage in London at the end of the year?
1: I didn't know that, but it's been on stage over the years. Many people have done stage versions of Twilight Zone, so this is a new one. The, uh-huh. Who's it being done by, a reputable company?
0: It's a good, good theatre, maybe I'll give them a call, you know, that would be, uh, be a good place to do it.
1: Well, this is what I'm saying. If there's something so because listen, all of these institutions love to hook up with something else similar that's in uh-huh. the culture happening at the same time. This is what journalists like to write about when they see, oh, there's Twilight Zone Live on stage, but meanwhile, you know, uh, the London Museum, the Tate, is having Arlen Schumer do a multimedia lecture about the Twilight Zone.
3: That's uh-huh. what I'm saying. And
1: then with your podcast, you see what I mean? You could do a live thing and promote, like, in other words, Uh it's all multi-formatted. You know what I'm saying? And then maybe by that time, maybe my book might come out, and who knows, you know? But it would be a beautiful way to, again, that would be something that CBS would be interested in and my publisher, that if I could Uh tell, listen, you know, if you publish the book, we can have in time for this, you know, London thing. I think big, Tom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You certainly do.
1: Rod Shirley taught me well.
0: But getting back to that lecture, I'll I'll tell you what I like about the lecture now. And you've touched upon this a few times as we've spoken. But, you know, you do talk about the cultural importance and the history and that kind of thing. But you talk about the visual style in a way that probably only an artist can do it. You know, and that's what makes you different from other Twilight Zone commentators. So, you know, what is it on a visual level that makes the Twilight Zone different from something like The Outer Limits? So I'll end our conversation there for this week. If you want to find out Arlen's answer to that question and so much more, then join me for part two next week. Now, if you're new to the Twilight Zone podcast and you just came to this show to listen to the Arlen Schumer interview, then first of all, welcome. I hope you stick around and go back into the archives where I've got interviews with other Twilight Zone commentators and people connected to the show, reviews of every Twilight Zone episode up until where I am in the run right now. And a few extra things here and there. Readings of Twilight Zone stories and that kind of thing. So I do hope you stick around and thank you for joining us. And to my regular listeners, thank you for joining me too. This episode is actually different from our scheduled one looking at It's a Good Life. That will come after part two of the Arlen Schumer interview next week. And I will speak to you soon.